Hey, take your Bibles, turn to um, Malachi 2. We're in a series on the minor prophets. We've got a couple weeks left, and I just got to tell you, we're going to miss that lead-in music when this series is done, aren't we? It's just kind of seared in our brains now. So uh, just a couple more weeks to enjoy that, so don't, uh, don't miss those moments. Um, as you're turning and finding your way to Malachi 2, it's the last book in the Old Testament. A um, couple things. Here's one of the things that I would say. I drove over from Grand Haven. I was preaching there, or Spring Lake. I was preaching there at the nine. And um, I got here right as Taylor was setting up the um, prayer time. Are you guys hearing me okay? Okay, great. Um, I know for some of you, it's, it might feel a little awkward. You're sitting next to people you don't really know or to pray out louder in groups. And here's what I would say. It just feels good to hear God's people pray in the house of the Lord. And it did your pastor's heart well to walk in here and just hear name of Jesus lifted up in prayer, in petition. Um, that's a great moment. Second thing, just so you know, as we turn to Malachi 2, yay, I get to preach Malachi 2 has never been said by any pastor at any time, okay? This is a difficult passage. And why are we in Malachi 2? Well, we're going through two of the minor prophets because as a church, we're committed to give you the whole counsel of God's word. And sometimes that leads you to passages that you wouldn't pick to teach. And uh, Malachi 2 is for sure one of those. And here's what I would say. I think that if we're, we'll focus for a couple minutes, we're going to be talking about reputation today. I think there's some things in this passage in chapter 2 of Malachi uh, that's an important message from God that we want to hear today. It's funny, people spend a lot of time, a lot of thought, a lot of energy trying to manage their image. Professional athletes try to manage their brand People worry about what other people think of them. That's often very high kind of in the things that we think about. Um, I don't know if you guys have hit this. It's kind of a little story, but there's this thing going on in the news that involves um, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard. Have you guys been watching this at all? It's kind of a little story, a little bit more coverage of that, I think, than the Ukrainian war right now. I, I haven't been following it. I'm not on team Johnny or team Amber. I don't know the specifics, but if I understand the gist of what's going on, one of them said something bad about the other one. So there was a defamation lawsuit filed. Am I close? And then because of a defamation lawsuit, because somebody said something bad about one, they both get to say bad things about each other for like two months on the stand. Is that what kind of this is involved into? What a great, awesome idea that is, isn't it? It's interesting. Reputation is important. Character is important. We're told in Proverbs 22, 1, it says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver and gold. And what you're going to see in the middle of Malachi 2, the prophet, God, through the prophet Malachi, is going to make an argument that a good reputation, a good name, it's not based off how you manage your image, how you dress, how you present. It isn't formed by who you run with or who's in your crew. It's not even formed by the things that you accomplish and the things that you do. Big idea this morning is simply this. Uh, there's a proven formula to a good reputation. There's a proven formula to a good reputation. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, Malachi 2 is going to have some specific words. Here is where you focus 
if you're concerned about your name, your reputation, your image, or your legacy. Too often, I think even as Christians, we, if we're not careful, we start to focus on the externals. I remember when we first started Harvest back in 2010, we were just three or four weeks old. We were having our first couple services at the Trillium, and as we met at the Trillium, we were maybe 100, 150 people, and all of a sudden, this group of people came from another church. I don't remember the other church. I don't remember the reasons, but what I remember about this group, they were for sure from a more conservative church than we were. All the women wore long dresses, All the girls wore long dresses. The men, suits and ties. The boys, suits and ties. The two-year-old boy in the nursery, suit and tie. Whole thing, straight across the board. And, And I remember that first week when the 25 or 30 visited, sitting with Cal and Chris, and they were like, oh man, they're gonna kill the vibe. People are going to walk in here. It's going to feel nerdy. It's a, this is a mess. And, and the funny thing was, as bad as that is, they were checking us out too. So after about four weeks, they were attending, and I went out to lunch with one of the guys, and he's like, hey, I just got to tell you, we're loving your church, but, it, but it's been really, really hard for us to adjust to the way you dress, but particularly Chris Moeller. Because <laughs> at that point, Chris was wearing jeans to lead worship. I was not wearing jeans yet. I was in my khaki and sweater phase. But Chris was wearing jeans, and this was very, very upsetting to this man, this group. And he said, so we've been wrestling with this. I've been praying about this, and um, here's where I'm at. I've decided, listen, if that's the best clothes that Chris owns, then i got to be okay with that. And then he tried to give me money because he wanted to buy Chris a suit. And, and, and I, was, I was kind of stuck in the moment, so, so I, I just dropped it on him. I'm like, hey, just so you know, Chris owns a suit. Like, like, if he owns a suit, why isn't he wearing a suit? And, and it was one of these moments that we said, well, when people come to church, the first thing that we don't want to hit them with is them feeling uncomfortable about the way that they dress. So we're not all that caught up in what we wear. We're not caught up in externals. It's not just how we look, it's, it's how we behave. If you're a follower of Jesus, that, well, maybe that means you go to church, you read your Bible, you're in a small group, you pray. All of those things are good things, but they're external things. You can do all of those things and really not have a close relationship with the Lord. And, and so a follower of Jesus Christ, he's not, he's not defined by how he looks. He's not even defined by what he does and doesn't do. What defines the follower of Jesus Christ is that God has his heart. And as we get into this book of Malachi, we started it last week, and some of you were here and would remember, Taylor said this, his big idea was this, the way that I worship reveals what I think about God. One of his points was, God wants nothing to do with heartless worship. In this series, we started in the book of Haggai, and the theme of that was prioritizing the pursuit of the presence of God. The presence of God needs to be the thing that we desire most. Malachi kind of flips that. The theme of Malachi is this, God wants your heart. God's after our hearts. You're going to see that as we go into chapter 2. Again, the big idea is there's a proven formula for a good reputation. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Malachi. It says this, and now, O priests, this command is for you, 
If you will not listen, if you will not take to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Be, be patient with me. I've got to pull three things out of that section of scripture, those two verses. Here's the first thing you need to see. We've got to deal with that word priests. For sure, has Malachi writes this, as God is speaking through Malachi, his focus is on the religious leaders of the nation. They've returned from exile, they've rebuilt the temple, and he's talking to the religious leaders. That's who the priests were. But you've got to also remember that in the New Testament, Peter will write this in 1 Peter 2. He says, speaking of the church, speaking to all of us, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into this marvelous light. Do not fall for the idea that Malachi 2 is only written for leaders. And if you're not in church leadership or if you're not a small group leader, that this isn't for you. The priest in the Old Testament had the ability to enter the presence of God. We have that same ability. We don't offer sacrifices year after year because Christ once and for all has paid the penalty and redeemed us from our sin. And we are all viewed in the Old Testament as followers of Jesus Christ. If you're a follower, you are a priest. So this word is also for you. When we talk about a good name and a good reputation, that's for everyone in this room. Here's the second thing that I want you to see. In, this, uh, in these verses, we saw it also in chapter 1, Christ is referred to throughout the book of Malachi by the title Lord of Hosts. might surprise you, 40% of the verses in Malachi include that phrase, Lord of Hosts. 30-some percent in Haggai, Lord of Hosts. Why in these two prophets that we're looking at does God constantly refer to himself as the Lord of Hosts? Here's why. Because Judah found itself returned to the land. They're rebuilding the temple, but they live in a little province surrounded by the Persian Empire. They have no army. They have no way to protect themselves. They are very small, surrounded by a very big enemy. And God, sometimes in those seasons where you feel unprotected, where you feel vulnerable, where maybe you're discouraged, where you feel weak, God presents himself as the Lord of hosts. In the Old Testament, there's a prophet. His name is Elisha. And, and the Syrian army is ticked at him. They've been hunting this guy down, this prophet. And they surround him in the town of Dothan. And Elisha wakes up one morning. He's there with his servant. And they look out on the hills surrounding Dothan and they realize that they're surrounded by the Syrian army. And the Servant is like, we're toast. I'm paraphrasing, but close, okay? And, and he says, now what are we going to do? And Elisha prays, and he says, Lord, open the eyes of my servant that he may see. And when the servant opened his eyes and looked again to the hills, he still saw the Syrian army surrounding him, but he saw the army of the Lord of hosts surrounding the Syrian army. God is the Lord of hosts. And maybe for someone in the room, that's just your good word this morning. Here's a third thing that I want you to understand. Twice in these verses, you see it in verse 2, two different times. If you will not take it to heart, in the last phrase, because you do not lay it to heart, God is after your heart. Now, in, in our culture, when I start to talk about heart, people start to think feelings and emotions. Girlfriend breaks up with a guy, well, he broke my heart. I feel sad. And we think about it more in an emotional or feelings type of context. Not so in the Hebrew 
In the Hebrew, when it talks about our hearts, it's referring to the seat of the will. It's where your resolve is in spite of the way you feel. And, and, and that's what God's after. Not just your emotions, but your resolve, your, your will. Parents, you get this. When, when you're raising your kids, you don't just want them to stop doing certain things and to do certain things and behave in a certain way. You're not just after their activity. Though by the time they get to high school, you might settle for that. We get tired, you know what I mean? But, but, but you're not just worried about the externals. You're after the heart. You, you want them to love Jesus. You want them to develop character. You want them to form their own convictions. So that that is the spring out of which the things that they do and don't do rise out of. It's, it's more than just what they do or don't do. It's why they do and don't do those things. That's what we're after his parents. And that's what God is saying to the priests. He's after their hearts. 1 Samuel 16, 7 says this. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 2 Chronicles 16, 9. This will be familiar for some of you. I love this verse. It says this. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless towards him. Here's what that just told you. God is looking across the entire earth for those whose hearts belong to him, and he's looking to bless them. He's looking to give them strong support. Anybody ever feel like, man, I could use some support right now? God's looking to support people whose hearts belong to him. Again, in verse 2, it says this, If you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Hear this, drifting away from God, when your heart is not with God, drifting away from God means you're drifting away from the blessings of God. He says, I will send a curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. What in the world does that mean? What does it mean that God will curse your blessings? That sounds scary. Well, well, let me explain. It's interesting, Solomon, he was an Old Testament king in Israel, had fame, had wealth, had power, had position. And he writes this in Ecclesiastes 6, verse 1. He says, there's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not bless him. Or does, or, I'm sorry, but God does not give him the power to enjoy them. So, so wait a minute. It's possible for God to give you blessings, but you don't enjoy them? That's what it means to, you're, I'm cursing your blessings. I'm giving you the desires of your heart, but they don't satisfy. And what's implied here is, God can give you blessings, but if he doesn't give you the ability to enjoy those blessings, I would say it this way. Anything that takes priority in your heart before God will ultimately fail to satisfy you. It's an idol. Idols will disappoint. They don't give you what they promise to give you. He says that I will curse your blessings. When God is not the primary pursuit, all other pursuits become idols. They will leave you wanting more. Ask Solomon. Ask Johnny Depp. Let's keep moving. Verse 3. Before we read verse 3, I need you to know something. Verse 3 is a verse that you need to commit to memory. 
Over the course of my adult life, I have probably referred to Malachi 2.3 as much as every verse in the Bible, save maybe a couple. I've probably John 3.16 beats at Romans 3.23, 1 Thessalonians 5.19. There's some verses I've quoted more than Malachi 2.3, but Malachi 2.3 is definitely in the top five. Let me explain. I've had a 35-year friendship with my brother-in-law, Scott Pierre. And uh, Scott and I are very competitive and we both love sports. Scott was a um, starter on his high school baseball team. He was a starter on, he was a quarterback of his high school football team. And he was a two-time Illinois State wrestling champion, would go to Purdue on scholarship and was an All-American wrestler for Purdue. So the problem with competing with Scott is this. How do you compete with somebody who's bigger, stronger, and faster than you? Well, it's easy. You play golf. Okay, so, so Scott and I love to play golf together. It, it, it evens the playing field, or we'll play cards together or different things. But when we're playing golf, what happens is we'll be on a green. Scott will hit a 20-foot putt, win the hole, do his best tiger impersonation, sashay over to the hole to get his ball. And as he's doing that, I'll just look at him and go, hey, M23, buddy. M23. Malachi 2.3. Let's read it together. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with them. It's kind of like Christian cursing. <laughs> As pastors, we don't want to swear at each other, so we just quote scripture to each other. Hey, M23. Repeat it over and over throughout our friendship. I digress. I'm joking around, but please don't miss something. God's not joking with Malachi 2.3. He's telling the priest, I want your heart. I'm tired of worship and sacrifice when I'm not your priority. And he goes, if you're not going to fix this, I'll deal with it. Those offerings that you're offering, I'll take the refuse of those offerings. I'll spread it all over you and your kids. I'll drive you away from Israel. I'll make you unclean, unfit to come into the presence of the Lord. That's what he's saying. This problem of priests whose hearts don't belong to God, it's a serious thing. Okay, verse 4. This is kind of the, the heart of what I want to get after. What determines my reputation? Look at verse 4. So, you, uh, so shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. Okay, Levi uh, um, was, uh, there's 12 tribes in Israel. Levi was the priestly tribe. It was the tribe of Levi that God set apart, and they would perform throughout Israel's history the priestly duties. So as we talk about Levi and this covenant, we're talking about the first priest, the kind of the father of the priestly line. And he says this in verse 5. He says, My covenant with him, my covenant with Levi, was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. Here's what he says. I made a covenant with Levi, the first priest, and the purpose of the covenant was life and peace. I'm going to argue all day, every day, every time I preach, that I believe that God is a giver and he's not a taker. That when God says don't, he's sparing us the pain that doing the things we shouldn't do will eventually lead to. That, that following Jesus Christ by living by the way that he's instructed us to live, it's for not only his glory, but it's for our good. Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, 
The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Looking for a little peace? Jesus is the source. I came. I gave it to them. They didn't achieve it on their own. It was a gift from me. That was my covenant with Levi. Psalm 1611, the psalmist writes, You make known to me the joys of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Don't believe that God's a taker and not a giver. It just isn't true. First key, what determines my reputation? End of that verse. You'll see at the end of verse 5. It was a covenant, though it was a covenant that he was giving to them for life and peace. Look what else it says. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me, and he stood in awe of my name. Okay, this is where the message gets a little difficult. I'll just be honest. That, that word fear, we've got to deal with it. And, and I can't dilute the intent of the text. If you do a deep dive on what that word fear means, it means terror, to be afraid. Well, the text says it was a covenant of fear and he feared me. He stood in awe. Let's focus on awe because that probably means respect or reverence. That takes a little bit of the edge off. Uh, no. In the Hebrew, the awe means to be shattered. So if you take what's being communicated in this, word, in this verse, it's like, hey, there is a terror, there is a fear, there is a brokenness that we should have as we come before a holy God. God is to be feared. But in our culture, fear is a bad thing. And if I fear my authority, that's, well, that's a problem with the authority because nobody should have to live in a situation where they're in fear of their authority. This is modern-day psychology, parents, to your kids. Think back on my childhood. Um, there were for sure seasons in my childhood where I lived in fear. And my dad wasn't a crazy disciplinarian. He wasn't abusive in any way. But there were times that I lived in fear, for sure. Like when I was failing biology... And I was keeping that a secret rather than getting help. When I was doing things that I shouldn't be doing, when I was sneaking out and smoking or drinking or whatever, I lived in fear in those moments because I understood even more than the punishment, I, I, I didn't want to disappoint. I, I didn't want to break trust. I didn't want there to be a barrier in our relationship because I cared about my relationship with my parents. I didn't want to see it broken by my actions. That's proper fear. Listen, if I, if I jump in my car and I drive from Spring Lake to Grand Haven to preach this service, and I'm speeding down 31 and I pass a cop, the fact that I'm in fear isn't his fault. That's on me. And, and there should be some appropriate fear. I can't diffuse what the text is saying. It's saying, do we fear the Lord? Do we understand that he is the Lord of hosts? Do we understand that he is a just, holy God that he sees? Now, there's great news in this, too, because we're told that we can approach him. If we're faithful to confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us, right? And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have a heavenly Father who loves us, who when we confess our sins, he'll run to reconcile. But don't miss this. There's a healthy Fear of the Lord. 
Proverbs tells us to fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And just because our culture doesn't accept that concept doesn't mean that it's not a biblical concept. Secondly, it says this in verse 6, true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. So fearing the Lord, what, what determines my reputation? Fearing the Lord, loving truth. Truth was in his mouth. There was no wrong found on his lips. Listen, you can't fear the Lord and not love truth. You can't fear the Lord and not love his word. Romans tells us, Romans 1 tells us that God has revealed himself to us in several ways. One of them is through the natural creation. We can understand that there is a God and that he exists by observing the world, his creation. So what that means, and it's true, you can come to me and say, rather than going to church on Sunday mornings, I just like to go to the park, take a long walk with my labradoodle and experience God. And you can experience God in those moments. But God has also given us his truth. His word is truth. He's given us his word so that we can know him more deeply. What he is like. What his attributes are. That he gave his son. Through Jesus we see God on full display. You can't love, you can't fear the Lord and not have it lead to you loving truth and loving his word. It is a progression. So first we fear the Lord, then we love his word, and the byproduct or the result of those things, look at it in verse, end of verse 6. It's a good name or a good reputation. It says, he walked with me, speaking of Levi, he walked with me in peace and righteousness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. So the progression is this, fear of the Lord leads to love of God's truth, which leads to a good reputation or a good name. Fear the Lord, love his word, and the byproduct of those is a good reputation. Text says that he turned many from iniquity. That means that he was a man of a character and his character impacted others. It says that people should seek advice from his mouth. Well, what makes your advice worth anything if it's consistent to the word of God? Fearing the Lord, loving his word. The question I was asked is, is this you? Without preaching it, people, just the way that you conduct yourself as you go to work every day, as your family operates, the priorities that you choose, the joy on your countenance. Do, do the people that you rub shoulders with, your neighbors, your co-employees, your family, do they look at you and do they seek counsel? Is that you? Be careful of the alternative. Look at verse 8. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways with so partiality in your instruction. Here, here's what this is saying. If you are a priest, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, yet you refuse to give God top priority, you refuse to yield your heart to him, he'll destroy your reputation. I make you despised 
and abased before all the people. If your heart's not in the right place, beware. God's going to do whatever it takes to get your attention. What determines my reputation? Fearing the Lord, loving truth, and the result is a good name. Here's the alternative. It's faithlessness. Look at verse 10. Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. In the next seven verses, five times we're going to see this word faithless. He's going to talk about marrying women from other countries. He's going to talk about us fighting with one another. He's going to talk in a minute about our families. But the broad umbrella over these texts is the idea of faithless. The first thing he addresses is that we are faithless to one another. You see that in verse 10. Why then are we faithless to one another? In this context, the example is people are marrying women from foreign countries that are serving foreign gods. Please hear me. The issue with God is never interracial marriage. The issue is interfaith marriage. That's what God is warning us against. In the New Testament, he tells followers not to be unequally yoked. Don't marry somebody who doesn't share your convictions. It's not a follower of Jesus Christ. Practically speaking, uh, dating evangelisms, not a great plan. Don't get involved with someone who doesn't share your conviction to be a follower of Jesus, you're, you're, you're just on dangerous ground. But what he says is, he says, listen, when we don't make fearing the Lord and loving truth our priority, everything starts to break down. All of our horizontal relationships begin to crumble. In essence, if you don't have your vertical relationship with the Lord correct, don't think you're going to be able to maintain your horizontal relationships. We begin to hurt one another. Sadly, I think this is a fairly good description of the church today. We, we live in a culture back when in Malachi, the prophet was writing to a nation that was surrounded by the Persian Empire. We live in a culture that is headed in a very different direction than giving their hearts to God. Can we agree? So as we're surrounded by wolves, we need to be careful that the sheep quit biting one another. Faithlessness starts to destroy relationships. It also destroys, the second one is not just to each other, but to ourselves. Look at verse 13. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. In essence, what he's saying is the priests are going through the motions. They're still doing the offerings. They're doing the external things that they're supposed to do, but they're not receiving any blessing. And that's tragic. That's sad. To do the things God's called you to do, but he doesn't have your heart so he doesn't bless you. That's sad. And these priests are not cartoons. They're not good people or bad people. They're just people. And what's happened is they're outside their externals. They're not matching their heart. It's not that they don't love the Lord. They just don't love him enough. And it's not that they don't fear the Lord. They just don't fear the Lord of hosts enough to change their behavior to grab their hearts. So the alternative is faithlessness to each other, to ourselves. And then here's a third one, verse 14. 
It affects our families. But you say, why does, uh, why does he not? The question is, why is he withholding his blessing? Why does he not? Because the Lord has witnessed between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. So, so the, they're asking, why is God withholding his blessing? Here's the straight up answer. Because of the way you treat your wife. Men, is that punch landing? Or are you the guy that believes he's the exception to the rule? You're the guy that believes that you can mistreat your wife, that you can neglect your marriage relationship, that you can look at pornography. You're that guy believing that God will still bless you? God says it's not happening. A little bit on the theology of marriage. I don't have a ton of time to develop this, but let me just say this. Back in Genesis 1 and 2, God establishes marriage. In Genesis 1:27, God made them male and female. Here's what that means if I need to explain that to you. God determines your gender. It's God's job, not ours. Here's the second thing that you see in Genesis 2, verse 18. God designed marriage. He said, it's not good that man should be alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. He was the one that performed the first marriage ceremony. And a third thing that we see from Genesis 1 and 2 is this. God said, be fruitful and multiply. I could develop that, but here's what that means. Sexual relations are to be enjoyed within the boundaries of a marriage and a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. Malachi is going to develop some other things. See these in the text. It says in verse 15, did he not make them one? Speaking of God, did God not make them one with a portion of the spirit in their union? Here's what he's saying. Marriage just isn't about you and your spouse. There's a third party in the marriage. That's the Lord. It's a sacred union. God established it as the foundation for the way that we interact, how society is to operate. It says this in What's, and, and, what was the one, uh, and what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. Not just kids, not just be fruitful and multiply. Godly offspring. That his parents were told in Deuteronomy, talk about the Lord all the time. When you rise, when you wake, when you go, when you come, when you sit at the table, be talking about the Lord. Raise your children in the instruction and knowledge of the Lord. It says, so guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. Here's the thing I want you to see. Guard your marriage. Guard your marriage. Men, your family, your marriage relationship is your highest priority before God. You fail at that, you're going to be a success nowhere else in life. You want a good reputation, you want a good name. How are you treating your family? What if? What if? people of Spring Lake, the people of Grand Haven, the people of the Tri-Cities were like, I, I, I don't know what those people of Harvest believe. You know, I, I, I don't really know what, what they're teaching them at that church, but man, those guys really love their wives. Those guys really treat them, their spouses well. Man, man, they're raising their kids. They're, it's a good reputation. It's a good name. It starts in the home. Marriage isn't just an institution. It's a divine institution. First, Genesis 1, creation. Genesis 2, marriage. It is the foundational structure and fabric of a culture and society. That's the way God designed it. And it should break our hearts, what we're seeing, our culture. The arrogance of our culture to believe that they can redefine marriage 
It grieves the heart of God. It should grieve us as well. Verse 16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, of, uh, says the, Lord the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Two choices, two options, two alternatives, two byproducts. Fear the Lord, love his word. A good name is the byproduct of these priorities. Refuse to fear the Lord, refuse to love his word. The byproduct is chaos and violence. Three suggestions as we close. Here's the first. Be willing to say the unpopular thing. There are times when what needs to be spoken under the umbrella of love is sometimes a hard word. It's sometimes, no, I can't go along with that. I don't agree with that. That's not what the Lord would have me do. So sometimes you have to be willing to say the unpopular thing. Why would you do that? Because you fear the Lord more than man. You're not worried about how people are going to respond to you and think about you. What you're most concerned about is what the Lord thinks of you. You love truth. Be willing to say the unpopular thing. Here's a, here's a second thing. Let God defend your reputation. Social media, you can go today, you can go hire uh, defendyourreputation.com. It'll clean the Google search of all the cruddy stuff under your name if you care about such things. That's an option. But I think tomorrow a bunch of other things might creep up. I trust the Lord of hosts. Let him defend your reputation. Too much time wasted worrying about what other people think of us. Why don't we worry about what the Lord thinks of us? Why don't we fear the Lord? Let the rest of that just kind of go by the wayside. First Peter 2, this is a verse that you can live on, is you should remind yourself often. When, when, when you're mistreated, when you feel that you have been betrayed, have been treated poorly, we're told to point to look at the example of Jesus Christ. It says this, Speaking of Christ, when he was reviled, that word means villainized, made out to be the villain. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let him defend your reputation. And then here's one more. Care less about yourself. In John 3.30, John the Baptist says these simple words, he must increase, but I must decrease. It's interesting. Younger men, when you're starting off in your career, men and women, you're trying to prove yourself, you're trying to build a reputation, you're trying to build a good name. You get a little older, you get near the end of your run, and we start to think about legacy. How we'll be remembered, what we've accomplished, how will people think of us when they remember us. At the end of the day, none of it matters. Our name will quickly be forgotten. The name that is important is the name of the Lord of hosts. He is our king. He is our savior. He is our Lord. We want to give him our heart. His name is the name to be praised, not ours. It's the name to be lifted, not ours. A man who fears the Lord, who loves truth. That's the pathway for the follower of Jesus Christ to develop a good name and a good reputation. Believe that God will bless that decision. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage, though difficult. Father, let us, um, 
learned that uh, seeking you first is the most important thing. Let that be our priority. Don't let us fall into the same trap as these priests 2,000 years ago who forfeited your blessing because they failed to surrender their hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.